You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Good morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church, and I'm so excited uh, for this fall teaching series. It's called Walk with God. Every fall, we really try uh, to kick off the fall with a core teaching series. Not that any of them are unimportant, but we really try to just kind of get down to what, what are we all about as a church? And one of the things we really genuinely care about is discipleship and your own walk with God. And that's really what we're talking about uh, in this series. Here's a tendency that maybe you've noticed. You become like the people that you spend time around. Have you experienced this? Where maybe you start to pronounce things or you talk differently. Uh, maybe you, uh, you, you start to eat the same foods or at the same restaurants. You watch the same TV shows. Or maybe you've had this experience where you show up to a social gathering and you're accidentally twinning. Anyone? Anyone have that? Where you're, you're like, whoa, we literally are wearing the same outfit. I experienced this uh, in youth ministry. There was a season of my life when I was uh, just starting off in ministry where myself and my brother Andrew, who is our family pastor, were both youth pastors in the same youth ministry at the same time. So it was crazy, right? It was the best of times. It was the craziest of times. And uh, we, were, we were youth pastors in this youth ministry. And our, the dem- one of those just character traits of many of the students in our youth ministry is they would describe themselves as indoorsy kind of people. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> The opposite of outdoorsy, right? Someone who maybe they were born and raised on, on video games. And, uh, and for me and my brother, we grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, literally in the woods, OK? So for playtime, our parents would just lock us outside the house and just say, go, you know, go, go wild. And uh, one of the things that I experienced in youth ministry was not only did we you know, hopefully disciple these students in the way of Jesus, we also kind of discipled them in the way of the outdoors. And uh, we would take students every single Sunday in the summer times on these hikes. Here's a picture uh, from one of the hikes. There's me. That's my dog, Pippin. I don't know what, what's gotten into Pippin in that uh, photo, but that's fairly normal for him. And we would take students on these Sunday hikes just after church. And, uh, you know, we, we took students who maybe they had never walked. You know, they, they would ask these kind of questions. They'd be like, all right, so what are, where are we walking to when we're going hiking? And we're like, we're not walking to anywhere. <laughs> We're just walking, and we'll be back at the cars in about an hour. And they're like, why, right? You know, and, and so it was kind of like this. It started as this totally foreign, like, what, Andrew, tell, and I promise, I'm not trying to slam our youth students, okay? Uh, but Andrew told me this one story when I was talking to him about this this week, where he was uh, giving a youth student a ride to the trail, and the student was like, how do I roll down the window? Because it was a crank instead of a button. So he's like, try to push the buttons. And Andrew's like, you just turn like it's a handle. Anyways. Uh, and I remember, so, so it started off as being this totally foreign thing. Like, yes, we, we go outside on purpose. And uh, I remember, though, the culture of our youth ministry began to change after some time. And uh, I remember the first student who bought a pair of Chaco sandals. 
that was like a bit, I know that's very, you know, like normal in, in this part of town, but that was like totally, you know, they saved up their money. They were kind of expensive, right? And they bought Choco sandals, and then everyone started to wear the same kind of sandals. And then uh, I remember eventually we ended up, by the, you know, by the time that I was about uh, finished with youth ministry, we took 60 high school students. Instead of to like a nice campground, we took them to go sleep uh, in tents and cook their own food on a backpacking trip for, that was our summer camp, that was our high school summer camp, is taking students up to the Sawtooth Mountains to go backpacking. Uh, every summer we would take our small group of guys on what we called man ventures, you know, and it was kind of these, these backpacking trips, and the first couple of those were kind of rough, and by the time that our students in our small group graduated high school, we took them on a senior trip to Australia where we did a 27-mile multi-day backpacking trip. And those are just like, so you can see, like, that's a, that is a, a huge shift from how do I open the car window, right? Do you see that? And the reality is that that discipleship really has a lot to do with becoming like the person that you're discipling, not just becoming more like Christ, but actually becoming like the person who's discipling you. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, says this, we become like the relationships we cultivate and the culture to which we belong. Now, we don't get a choice in the culture that we're born into, do we? You didn't choose the family of origin that you were born into. You didn't choose the geographic location that you were born into. However, every single person gets the choice in the relationships that they cultivate. And this is very significant when it comes to spiritual formation. Is last week we talked about abiding, being with Jesus, and having a strong, quiet time. And that is essential. That is very, very important in our discipleship. But I would say that's not sufficient. We need something more. We need real relationships with living, breathing human beings. And so today we're talking about step two of our discipleship pathway, which is to become like Jesus. Here's the chart that we're operating with. Every single one of us, uh, it, you know, it belongs to one of these five different stages. Either you're here in your pre-faith all the way up to being someone who's mature in the faith. And really the beginning and the end of discipleship is being with Jesus. It's something you never graduate out of. That's what we talked about last week. But the second step is we actually need to become more like Jesus. I mean, that's the point of discipleship, right? For us to become more like Christ. Look at what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, verses 5 through 6. He says, by this we know that we are in him. Okay, so this is the evidence that you're in Christ. He says, whoever says he abides, there's that word abide again, right? Who's connected to Jesus. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Translation, you're becoming more like Christ the longer that you follow him. Your life, your, your virtues, your thoughts, your actions, your words become more like Christ. And the reality is we need people to help us in this. We need relationships with real people. In essence, the church is one of the essential components to becoming more like Christ. And wherever you're at in your discipleship to Jesus today, whether you're here, you're skeptical, or you're seeking, or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for years, all of us can become more like Christ, can't we? 
All of us are a work in progress, and there are areas in your life right now that I believe the Holy Spirit is inviting you to become more like Christ. So we're going to be in a teaching text from Luke chapter 6. Uh, a short teaching text. We'll be jumping around in the Bible a lot today, looking at a lot of various uh, passages in this, but this is kind of our main operating text. Luke chapter 6, we'll actually jump into verse 39. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, we looked at this earlier in the summer in the Sermon on the Mount. Does anyone remember that? This is actually sandwiched in between Jesus' teaching on judgment, where he talks about pulling out the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And in the middle of that, he really has the, these, these short statements that really are the essence of discipleship. And he gives this short parable talking about a blind person leading a blind person. And, you know, when we use the word disciple, we often use it kind of as a synonym for Christian, right? Which I believe is a, a good thing. I think every Christian should be a disciple, should be a follower of Jesus. I don't think there's a difference really between those two terms. But in the first century, if you were to use the Greek word mathetes, which is the word for disciple, it means a pupil, a learner, or a student. Really what that meant is it meant an apprentice of a rabbi. Does that make sense? And that was a hands-on you know, kind of multi-year commitment. And I would say when we think of the word student or pupil, you know, what comes to mind for us is kind of, you know, the American education system, which is you go, you listen to a lecture, you do your homework, you write a paper, and you, you leave, right? That, that sort of thing. And that's actually miles different from this Greek word, mathetes. It's really a, a better version of that, a better illustration of that would be someone who's an apprentice to become, let's say, an electrician or a plumber, Right? It's not this classroom-only thing. You don't want an electrician to, to do the wiring on your house if they've never actually touched electric wires, right? You want someone who's like done it, like hands-on. They're following the, the, you know, the master electrician around. They're learning, they're doing, they're participating. That's essentially what it was like to be a disciple. And you were, you were a disciple of a rabbi in the hopes of one day becoming a a rabbi yourself, right? So when, when, when we read about disciple, uh, the word disciple in Scripture, Jesus calling the 12 disciples, it's actually kind of like a career change for these guys. It was like, I was going to be a fisherman like my father before me. Now I'm going to be a rabbi like Jesus. And it was this hands-on, multi-year learning kind of commitment. And these disciples would have, would have sought to copy everything they could from the rabbi. There's stories of, you know, disciples who if your rabbi had a beard, you really wanted to grow a beard, and too bad if you can't, right? And, uh, you know, the way that your disciple taught, you would try to teach the same way, even like use mannerisms the same way as your rabbi. You would dress the same. You would, you would try to teach the same. And Jesus' point here in this, this short little parable is you better not pick a bad rabbi. You better not pick a blind rabbi. Because that rabbi will impart to you not just the good aspects, but also the bad aspects. And what Jesus is doing when he's telling this parable is he's implying that he himself is the one true rabbi, that we should seek to pattern our lives after him. 
And he uses this interesting word when he says, every disciple, when they are fully trained, will become like their teacher. This word fully trained is the Greek word katartizo. And it's, a, it's an interesting word. It doesn't, it doesn't normally even mean the word train. Actually, what it generally means is it means to repair, to complete, or to strengthen. It's the same word when James and John were in the boat with their father, right? James and John were fishermen by trade. They're in the boat with their father. It says that they're mending the nets. The word there is the same word, katartizo. They're fixing the nets. So when Jesus is talking about disciples becoming like their teacher, what he's really saying is he's saying there's something in the heart of every single human being that's actually fundamentally broken in need of repair. Sin has damaged all of us, hasn't it? Sin has, has wrecked the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we do relationships, and it, it's, it does damage to us. That's one of the things that we often don't think about. We often think about the penalty and the punishment of sin, but do we actually realize the damage that sin has done in the soul of humankind? And what Jesus is saying, he's saying that what we need in order to experience wholeness is we need katartizo, we need training, we need repairing, we need mending. Uh, the word for this, if I, last week we looked at being with Jesus and the one word, you know, way to be with Jesus is the word abide, you remember that? The one word I wanna give you for becoming like Jesus is the word sanctification. Everyone say sanctification. You gotta say it like, you, like you're in church, sanctification, okay? And transformation would be a good word to use as well. And yet you could transform into any number of things, can't you? Right? Romans 12, we're supposed to tr be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But specifically, we're supposed to be transformed into the image of Christ. And so we're going to get specific. We're going to use the word sanctification. It's hagiatso. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is what Paul writes to the church. He says, for this is the will of God. Have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? Paul's going to give it to you in one word. Your, everyone say it, sanctification. God, what do you want to do with my life? He wants to sanctify you. He wants to help you become more holy. He wants to ketartizo. He wants to repair the brokenness inside of you so that you can be the, the true human that he created you to be. A few verses later in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, he says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Sanctification is literally the process of becoming more holy. That's what, that's what it means to become like Jesus. We're not talking about beards and robes and sandals. We're talking about holiness. We're talking about becoming more like Christ. Now, the longer you follow Jesus, to use the same you know, illustration that Jesus uses about logs and eyes, the longer you follow Jesus, the less logs you should have in your eyes. Does that make sense? I mean, I think that's why he sandwiches this right in the middle of that, that teaching about judgment, is there's this process of opening yourself up for the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to highlight, to convict the ways that you're still broken, you're still in need of repair, and to, by the grace of God and the power of the gospel, allow the Holy Spirit to pull those logs out of your eyes. And then you, in turn, will be able to see clearly to help someone else. So we want to become more like Jesus. And that really begs the question, well, what is Jesus like? What is Jesus like? Well, Jesus is like God because Jesus is 
God. He's the son of God, right? So when we talk about Christ-likeness, we talk about godliness, it's the same thing. Does that make sense? And uh, so Christ is the image in Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Uh, and yet, it's really difficult to like synthesize this and just like, here, the, here's the three things that Jesus is like. Okay, this is kind of like a lifelong learning more, the depths of who Christ is. One go-to list, I would say, and you can find these kinds of lists all over the New Testament letters, but one go-to list is Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Uh, we did a teaching series on the fruit of the Spirit. We got very creative. We called the teaching series Fruit. Uh, for Fruit of the Spirit. And it's a nine-week series. There's nine Fruit of the Spirit. And I, I always encourage people, memorize that list because it's a really good like assessment, like personal assessment. Am I like Christ in the way that I love? Am I like Christ in the way that I experience joy? Am I like, you know, you can go through each one of those. And uh, you can always look back. You can, you can check those out on YouTube or po- uh, podcasts there. But what I want to do is I want to look at two, just two, Okay two specific characteristics of Jesus Christ, and for us to use these as a little bit of an assessment and ask ourselves, are you like Christ in these two areas? You ready? If you're taking notes, there's just two. The first one is Jesus is light. I got, I got both of these actually from uh, the epistle of 1 John. Uh, in 1 John, there are two God is statements, and I think it's really helpful, really simple for us to remember, uh, but the first one is, is about God being light. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, the apostle John writes this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, okay, so if you say that you have a relationship with him, he says, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, so if you want to say that you're, you're abiding in Christ, you have a fellowship with God, but you don't have any light in you whatsoever, John's saying that's just not the case. You're deceiving yourself. So God is light. Uh, significantly in the Gospel of John, in John 8, 12, Jesus describes himself this way. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I himself is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, so God is light. Jesus is light. And then significantly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14, who does Jesus say should be light? He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, that's a significant verse for us. It's where we get our name as a church, Hill City Church. But you see that progression, right? God is like, this is a central characteristic of, of God, is a characteristic of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what Jesus says, if you want to become like me, guess what? You better be the light of the world as well. Well, what does it mean to be the light of the world? Well, light is not, we're ta- not talking about like physical light, Okay. So Jesus is not saying that he's the light of the world in a metaphysical sense. He's using it in a metaphorical sense. So it's symbolic. And really, light represents three main things. We've talked about these many, many times before uh, because it's one of my favorite symbols from Scripture. But light represents righteousness. So this is the question, do you live a righteous life instead of a sinful life? Are you living your life the right way according to the way of Christ? Are you living your life according to Scripture? Are you making up your own morals, your own ethics, your own definitions of good and evil, or are you accepting uh, those things as laid out from Scripture? That's what it means for light to be righteousness. Light is truth. This means that Jesus himself is the source of truth, 
And uh, what, what he calls us to do is he calls us to hear his words, to obey his words. And uh, Paul in Philippians 2 tells us that we should have the mind of Christ. And what that means is we think like Jesus would think. We think scripturally, we think biblically, we have a biblical world view. So light is righteousness, light is truth, and then light is also life, as Jesus said. Life meaning that he came that we would have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. And so when it comes to eternal life, we're not waiting to experience eternal life, but as soon as you have faith in Jesus, you can experience eternal life right here, right now. You can have joy on another level. You can have peace on another level. You can experience reconciliation in relationships. You can experience contentment. So let me just ask you this question. Are you the light of the world? How are you doing? When you think about Jesus and what it meant for Jesus to be the light of the world, are you embodying that characteristic of Christ? Or are they, is, is there a disparity there? Is there quite the difference there? That's just the first one. The second one might be a little bit more familiar to you. Jesus is not only light, Jesus is love, okay? Jesus is love. People love talking about love, okay? Uh, here's a, a very, a, maybe the most popular verse from the epistle of 1 John. 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe that God, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever, notice this word, abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. So once again, how do you know if you're in Christ, if you have a relationship with Christ, then you, then you know the love that God has for you, the love that is shown for you in the gospel. Now when we use this word love, this is agape love. There are a few different uh, Greek words for love. And agape love is the selfless, sacrificial kind of love. It's not this warm, fuzzy, butterflies in your tummy type deal, okay? This is real giving kind of love. And so God is love, but look at what John writes in 1 John 4, 10. This is the greatest example of love. In this, so what he's about to say, this is love. You want to see a definition of love? Look at this. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if you want to see what true agape love looks like, look at the cross. Look at what Christ Jesus has done for us. Living the life, the perfect life that we could never live, that we could never, you know, we could never measure up to that standard, and then dying the death that we deserved on the cross. That's love. And that, that's another one of those like propitiation, big churchy kind of words. But it's essentially that Jesus Christ offered his life for yours on the cross. And he faced the wrath of God and he died the death that we deserve and he rose from the grave three days later. And he invites you. He didn't do that selfishly. He did that selflessly. He did that sacrificially so that you could share in his victory, so that you could be forgiven for your sins and so that you could be made new and made righteous before God. And so I would, I would just say this to you. Before you try to embody that kind of love, I'm just gonna try to be that loving in my life. Have you accepted and experienced that kind of love from Christ in the gospel? Have you received God's goodness? Have you received his grace? Have you asked for his forgiveness? And if you've never responded to the good news of the gospel, today can be the day. I mean, if you hear these words and the Holy Spirit is moving in you, do not harden your heart, but allow God to do something new in you today. Today you can pray and ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. And I wanna invite you to receive God's love and respond by putting your faith in Jesus through baptism. It's the way Jesus instructed us to do so. You can learn more about baptism at hillcityboise.org slash 
baptism. And so before we try to just you know, flex our spiritual muscles and be as loving as Christ Jesus, we've got to be loved by him first. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and he gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. So I would just invite you, I want to call you to faith and call you to salvation today. And many of you have done so. Many of you have a faith in Jesus Christ. So what's next? Well, Jesus in John 13, 35, he expects this kind of love from us. Look at what he says. By this, okay, so he, what he's about to say, this is how all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have what? If you have agape love for one another. So God is love, Jesus is love, and then he's saying his followers better be love as well. We need to embody this kind of sacrificial, selfless kind of love. And if you want to kind of uh, define that word love a little bit more, you can read from 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe use this as a little bit of an assessment for asking yourself, how loving are you? Are you loving to the standard of Christ Jesus? Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. When someone's watching a TV show you don't want to watch. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that passage is not just good for weddings and bathroom mirrors, okay? That passage is for the church to look at and say, am I loving to the measure, to the standard of measure of Christ Jesus? Or is my love weak in comparison to Christ? I mean, do you love people like Christ loved people? Do you sacrifice? Do you give? Do you serve? Is it all about you or is it about others? That's just two, okay? Light and love. How, how are we doing? I don't know about you. I just want to be honest. I don't know about you, but when I just look at even just two characteristics of Christ, I think, man, I am still a work in progress. I have got a ways to go when it comes to becoming like Christ. And I've got to tell you that going to church once a week will not cut it if you want to truly become like Christ. So what's it going to take to truly be a disciple of Jesus and, and not just to be with him? And quiet time is very important. Spending that time alone with Jesus is very important, but also we need people. Here's the point. People, not programs, make disciples. People, not programs, make us disciples. There's a difference between the crowds who heard the sermons of Jesus and the disciples who actually followed Jesus. People, not programs, make disciples. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't hear me wrong. Uh, I believe in the public gathering of, of, of believers, okay? We're here, you're here. We're doing it right now, okay? So good on you. And, and yet, and, and you can grow in, in your faith, Right? I'm not saying that you can't you know, grow towards maturity or discipleship, but what I'm, what I'm here to say is that you'll never fully be able to experience the maturity and the discipleship that God wants for you if you only ever participate in programs. We need people who know us and we know to actually call us out and say, there's a log in your eye, right? There's a log, or maybe it's just a speck. Maybe it's not a whole log. It's just a speck. But let me tell you, I used to have a log in my eye, and I've experienced freedom from the Holy Spirit by the grace of God in this area. Could I help you with that speck? Because I can tell you're never going to be able to get that speck out of your eye on your what? 
on your own. And the problem and I, with, with programs alone and kind of expecting that, I'm going to go to church one hour a week, if that, right? If that, let's be honest with like modern church attendance in America, 1.6 times a month or whatever the number is this year, right? But church services and books and podcasts and YouTube videos, those are all great. I do all those things too. But those are all what's called passive forms of learning. You understand that? What it means to be passive is, is that someone, you're just receiving, it's a one-way channel. I'm preaching a sermon, you are doing what? Listening, and maybe answering a question here and there when I'm like, what are you doing? And you're like, listening, right? I try to be engaged, and it, even if you take notes, and I believe in taking notes. I've got a buddy who says, note takers are world changers, and I, that's great if you take notes. But even if you take notes, and even if you internalize it, it's still kind of an individual Someone is teaching, you are listening. It's not apprenticeship, you know what I'm saying? It's not the electrician kind of learning how to do following Jesus. It's just information. It's, and, and it's been modeled to us in our culture, in our society, right? In our education system, someone lectures, you listen, you take notes, you have to answer questions. But who can really remember the capital of Maryland? If we're on, it's not Baltimore, by the way. I had to look it up. It's Annapolis, Maryland. And there was, some of you are like, is it? Like, you're Google, you're fact-checking me right now. <laughs> Who's the ninth president of the United States? We learned all these things in school, didn't we? Did we internalize them and live them out? No, absolutely not. Because passive learning is not mathetes, catartizo. It's not this kind of sanctification and discipleship that Christ really has in mind. So we don't just need programs, we need actual, real life, living, breathing people. Because discipleship is not passive, discipleship is personal. It's a life on life, person with a log, person with a spec kind of relationship going on. Jesus did not say every disciple, once they've attended enough credits, will become like their teacher. Once they've attended enough class periods, once they've attended enough church services, he says, a disciple who has been fully trained, hands-on, relational, in-conversation trained, that's the person who's going to become like their teacher. And I think we have a discipleship crisis in the American church where, where we've relied, and there's nothing wrong with programs, but we've relied on programs and curriculum and sermons, and we haven't really activated and mobilized every disciple to make more disciples. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 15. The church in Corinth had a lot of problems, but uh, here, here's, here's what, what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 4, 15. He says, for though you have countless guides in Christ voices that they listen to, he says, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I don't know a, a better term to describe what it means to be a disciple maker than a spiritual father or mother. And we need guides. We need voices. We need podcasts. We need books. We need all those. We need information, all that sort of stuff. But really what we need is spiritual fathers and mothers. Who are, you know what the work of parenting is? is to raise your children up to be independent, right? To be able to live life and, and life to the full, to show them, not just to tell them information and, and give them knowledge, but to actually equip them and empower them and to step back more and more as they get older and be more hands off and to watch as they become the people that God designed them to be. That's discipleship. 
spiritual parenting. And then later on in 1 Corinthians, there's going to be this issue about eating meat sacrificed to idols, right? That's not something that I've ever encountered, but it's a, it's a situation that the church in Corinth was encountering. And there's a lot of areas, uh, like gray areas in scripture, isn't there? It's not enough to just say like, well, read the Bible, it'll tell you what to do. They're like, well, what about the meat thing? <laughs> I don't know about the meat. Like, it's not really there. And that's a, the reality is... It's all well and good to, to like be able to spout off Bible verses, but there's a lot of interpretation, and there's a lot of application, and there's a lot about, well, I'm not, and there were people in the church in Corinth who were, some were making a pretty good case, you shouldn't eat pagan meat. And other people were like, why not, right? And so you had this kind of like, and they were, they were using the same passage, that you, you know, and they're arguing, and they're talking past one another, and this is how Paul settles the issue 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He doesn't say WWJD. <laughs> and this is actually huge. He doesn't say, well, what would Jesus do? And many of the people in the church in Corinth would say, oh, well, I've never met Jesus. You see that? Like physically, I mean, they know Christ is their Lord and Savior, but they would say like physically, I've never had a meal with Jesus. So it's quite difficult for me to imagine whether or not Christ would be eating the meat sacrificed to idols or not. And so what does Paul say? He doesn't say, what would Jesus do? He said, what would who do? What would I do? And you know that I follow Jesus. So what he's, this is huge. He's saying, you need to find people in your life who you know they're Christ-like, you know they're godly, and instead of just WWJD, you need to say, what would that person, my spiritual father do, my spiritual mother do? Because being a disciple and a disciple maker, it's a, it's a real life, breathing, living, like relational, life-on-life -life kind of transformation. Can you, I care about this, okay? I care about this so much. We need this in our church. R. Kent Hughes says, says it like this. Next to God's word, few things influence others more than the authenticity of someone else's life. That is the essence of discipleship is yes, we need quiet time alone with Jesus. We need time in prayer. We need spiritual practices. But I would say this, that is not sufficient for your discipleship journey, for walking with God. You need people, real life people, who are following Jesus and who are helping you grow spiritually. Two practices, okay? The first one will not be a surprise to you if you've been to Hill City Church for any amount of time. Sign up for a life group. Come on, somebody. Okay, life groups. And I said, like, we need people, not programs. And technically, you could argue, decide, you know, life groups are a program. But really, what it is, is it's an opportunity to be with people and to be discipled by people, for iron to sharpen iron. From the very beginning of Hill City Church, we said we do not want our life groups, our small group ministry, to be an optional like bonus for people if they want that sort of thing. We said we want this to be a core aspect of our disciple-making strategy. There are dozens of one another commands in Scripture, dozens of them, that I believe you cannot fulfill the law of Christ you cannot truly follow Jesus alone because you can't fulfill any of these one another's in scripture. I just want to go through 10. We're going to go through them really fast, but I want you to try to imagine. Could you actually do that by yourself? The first one uh, we already looked, like, looked at, John uh, 13, 34, love one another. How's that, how's that going to work? You in, the you in the bathroom mirror, like, I love you. 
right? You have to, there's got to be people there for you to love. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another and forgive one another. This is huge, that there's an expectation that church people are hard to get along with. The Bible is so real. Like, it's like you're going to have to bear with one another. But in order to fulfill that, you have to be in relationship with people who frustrate you. That's crazy to think about, by the way, that Paul expects us to spend time with people that we can't stand so that we can bear with them and forgive them. Insane. Okay, James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another. You get, you're not, we're not doing this open mic style on a Sunday morning. We'd be here all day. We've got to confess, we've got to have actual people. When is the last time that you genuinely confess your sins to another person? That should be happening in discipleship. That should be happening in our life groups. And then the second half of that, James 5.16, is to pray for one another because we need someone, someone else to speak God's grace, to speak gospel words, and to pray for us. Galatians 5.13, through love, serve one another. Serve one another. Actually, like, be there for one another and help one another. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in love. You've got to stick with it, stick, stick through difficult times and difficult seasons with other people. Philippians 2.3, uh, uh, share one another's burdens. This might be, like, spiritual burdens, like someone shares something with you and, you know, they just feel better because you're now carrying part of that burden with them. It might be literal burdens. You help someone move. Have you thought about that? Like actually, like you're, you're, help, you're showing up to someone and you're helping them with their kids or you're helping them with a meal or you're helping them to clean their house or whatever it looks like, right? First Thessalonians 5.11, encourage and build up one another. You need encouragement and you need to be encouraging other people. And then spur one another on to love and good deeds. Part of identifying your calling and your purpose as a follower of Jesus and the good works which are prepared for you by Christ Jesus in advance so that you would walk in them is actually to have someone else help you identify those things. Because there may be things in your life that you've just kind of said like, oh, I just, that just always comes natural to me. I've never really thought about that as like a spiritual gift. And someone else is like, well, let me tell you, I'm horrible at that. And you've got a gifting for that. Why aren't you using it for God's kingdom? Does that make sense? That's just 10. There's dozens of those. You can read the New Testament. That word alone is the word one another. And you can't do that if you show up on a Sunday morning and you leave as soon as the service is over and you don't know anyone's name. You cannot do that if you only attend a program. You need people to help you grow in your discipleship. So sign up for a life group. You can sign up on a Connect card today. We've got, uh, we've got about 50 different life groups around here, and about half of those are open and accepting new members. We've got a, a handful of life groups that are brand new starting this month. Or you can also go to hillcityboise.org, and you can like click, and you can see. It's, kind, it's gonna be awkward, a little bit like dating, right? Like, which group do I wanna go to? And it's gonna be awkward. It requires vulnerability. It requires, here's the, here's the thing. It requires time, an extra hour, extra couple hours of your week. It's gonna require commitment to other people. And this is why I think we don't see this very much in the American church, in our hyper-individualized society. And some of you would say, well, I already go to church 1.6 times a month. How much more committed could I be? And I would just say, are you genuinely committed to being a disciple of Jesus Christ or is it some bonus extracurricular activity for you? If you wanna become like Jesus, then you better be committed to the church, to be committed to one another. And you're gonna, it's gonna take time. 
but just watch a few less episodes on Netflix. All right, that's the first one. Sign up for a life group. The second practice is maybe for some of you who are like, okay, I've been in groups before. Maybe you have something against like a, a group of about 10. You don't, have to, you don't have to do discipleship in a group of 10 or 12. You can actually do it in a smaller group, and that's to find a mentor, to find a mentor. A men- mentorship is what I would call micro-small group. So what's smaller than small? Micro. Okay, that's just kind of a fancy way to say it. What's the smallest group technically that you could be in? It's two. If it's one, it's not a group, okay? Hate to break it to you. Two, and this is like two to four people. And a mentorship is essentially someone meeting with you, and it's, it's for coffee, right? Or they're meeting with a couple people, or up to, I would say up to three people. Once you get to five, it's not micro. It's a full-on life group at that point. But essentially, mentorship is a phenomenal way for you to grow in your discipleship to Jesus Christ. Bill Hall, in his book, The uh, Complete Discipleship Handbook, says this, mentorship is closer to the core meaning of discipleship because discipleship is about one person following another and becoming like that person. When we look at Jesus, what did Jesus do? He had a group of 12, and in that 12, he had the three. And they're all doing ministry all the time. Uh, but he, you know, he had this kind of like t- group of 12, and then he had the group of three. And he especially mentored those three. He poured into them. And the difference between mentorship and something like coaching is really what mentorship is about. It's about character formation. And, and so I would say this to you. If, if you feel like you would benefit from being mentored by someone, being discipled in a smaller, in a kind of a micro context, is here's the point for you. Look for people who look like Jesus. It's really quite simple. Look for someone who looks like Jesus. As Paul was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Look for those people that you want to follow them as they follow Jesus. Now, don't look for someone who's perfect because you're not going to find it, right? But look for someone who who looks like Jesus, maybe even in a specific way. I'd love to have a marriage that looks like that guy or that girl. I'd love to have a prayer life that looks like that person. I'd love to just be able to understand the word that looks like this person. And then here, it's really simple. Buy that, ask that person if you can buy them coffee, meet with them, and at that meeting, say, would you like to meet together more regularly? I'd love to be mentored by you. I'd love to be discipled by you. Now, here's the thing. Relationships are messy, and it's very, it's very possible that person says no. <laughs> That's harsh truth in a sermon, by the way. Yeah, they may not want to mentor you. No, it may not be that. They may just genuinely not have time to like commit to some kind of like 12-week mentorship journey with you. And this is where it gets vulnerable. And this is where you say, okay, well, at least we had this one coffee and I learned a little bit from you and I thank you, you know, thank you for spending time with me. Or maybe that person's already mentoring someone else. So they're already leading like six life groups, right? Maybe find someone who's a little more available, but look for people who look like Jesus and just meet with them regularly and experience the life-giving transformation that the Holy Spirit can do in you, sanctifying you in that disciple-making relationship. Now, what do you do if someone comes up to you this week and they say, would you mentor me? Come back next Sunday (laughs) as we talk about doing what Jesus did. And one of the main things that Jesus did was he made disciples. Let's stand as we worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. 
You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.